The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Joining us now is Lionel Laurent. He covers uh, he covers all things for us from Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, and Lionel, can we just start with what we're expecting to learn from these hearings? Why are they important? Well, I think the uh, the opening comments, the testimony from David Marcus, kind of lays out already what the in, important parts are. I mean, from from the from the regulatory political point of view, they they clearly have to answer or push on two questions, which is where does the data go? How is it really kept at arm's length from Facebook? And what does Libra mean for financial stability, given that it's going to be investing in big currencies like the dollar, like the euro? And I think that already the opening testimony from David Marcus is trying to tell everyone, look, don't worry, we're not even going to move. We're not going to budge on this until everyone is happy. And we're going to want to be regulated um, to, to an almost extreme level before this even gets off the ground. So it's going to be a lot of kind of soothing language from from Facebook on this and hopefully more transparency. So, you know, I, I, I'm glad you brought up the kind of the, the type that the statement from Mr. Marcus, because it was extremely conciliatory, uh, I would say, in terms of, as you mentioned, that they will not move until they get full regulatory approval. What is this sense within kind of the technology world, the financial regulatory world, whether Facebook can ever get approval for this type of uh, currency? So I think that what we're seeing now is primarily a political reaction. It, it is as though Cambridge Analytica was happening again. This is from the lawmaker Congress side of things. I, I think on the on the regulation front, I think that there is actually a, a lot of debate, a lot of kind of open debate about whether there should be this should be a trigger for say, digital currencies to be issued directly by the central bank. I think that uh, regulators like Mark Carney, for instance, have been more open than others in saying, why don't we just bring them into our tent and keep a really close eye on them as the condition for letting them launch. I have yet to hear anyone say, let's ban this. So I think that a lot of this reaction is primarily about politically keeping a check on Facebook's power and not because everyone has suddenly agreed that this should never see the light of day. Lena, I'm trying to figure out uh, what what exactly Libra is. I mean, do we have a sense of what exactly it is, or is it more concept uh, than even a firmed-up uh, reality or potential uh, reality in the near future? So I think Facebook uh, would would like it to be seen as money electronic money. This is why they're saying Libra is cash. It's why they're saying they will be regulated as a money services 
business. But they, uh, how can I put this, may be disappointed to find that regulators don't agree with their definition because, remember, on the cryptocurrency front, there were plenty of discussion about whether Bitcoin and Ethereum were securities or commodities. And Libra may end up being viewed as an exchange-traded fund because, theoretically, or conceptually, you can see how someone is putting money into Libra and receiving in exchange a slice of something that is investing in currencies, investing in assets. So there's a, a very good argument to say it's a, it's an ETF. So there's a whole debate about what it should be that may not go Facebook's way. Leonel, I know some Facebook investors have been asking the basic question of why. Why would Facebook you know, attempt to get into a business that is so highly regulated, not just in the U.S., but around the world, particularly given a, a time when there are serious concerns being raised about uh, some of their, uh, their core business, the privacy and data security and so on? Well, it's interesting because in, it's very easy to say in hindsight, but I remember when Libra was first announced, there were plenty of self-help analysts saying, this is fantastic. It's a whole new revenue stream. It's, so, so the question is almost why this particular structure with, with the crypto side of things, because Facebook has tried several times to get a payments business off the ground. You can see why its business model of 90% advertising is way too concentrated and could do with, with an actual revenue stream where people pay for things on Facebook. That makes complete sense. But because their previous bids have flopped, they clearly entrusted David Marcus with finding a new way to do it, a successful way. He went the cryptocurrency route, and I think that is the big question. That is the why. Why go down this blockchain route? Why go down this attempt at being decentralized and trying to please all types of people, including blockchain developers and Bitcoin buyers? That, that's a big question, right. question for me. Lionel Laurent, thank you so much for being with us, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Well, the grocery business clearly has historically been a very competitive business, very tough, tight margins, particularly in New York City uh, with all of the bodegas and independent grocers. The question I've always had is, who supplies these small bodegas and independent grocers? Well, we found the answer, Crasdale Foods. Steve Silver is president and COO of Crasdale Foods based on White Plains and the Bronx, New York. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Tell us about Crasdale Foods. What is, who are your customers and kind of what is the history of, of your company? Certainly. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for having me here. Uh, quite a story, Crasdale Foods. 110-year-old, family-owned business, now in its third generation. Um, servicing, as you said, bodegas and independently-owned supermarkets throughout the metropolitan area. Uh, company for the longest period of time up until maybe the mid-70s, strictly serviced any supermarket, any chain. If you had a convenience store, if you had a deli, we had a, an army of salespeople out in the street that would take orders and just, uh, and then we would follow it up and deliver you goods. I mean, we were essentially a drayer. Where Crasdale transformed into a full-service company is in the 70s, when most of your uh, vertically integrated chains were leaving the city, leaving the urban area, heading out to suburbia, looking for more golden grounds, larger formats, larger stores, and uh, essentially abandoned uh, the, the people of New York, uh, leaving food deserts all over the place. Management at the time, that was prior to me, as much as I, you know, I've been there 38 years, but that was still prior to me, had the insight and the foresight to see if they can collectively grab up many of those independently owned 
supermarkets and see if we can't get them to operate under common banners. And that was the birth of our Seatown program. So while we don't own the stores, we service those stores. We give the store owner the opportunity to operate as if he was a vertically integrated chain. We provide all the specialized services that a supermarket would need from professional help, front-end help, specialty help, perishables, anything that a chain would deliver to their vertically integrated stores, we would deliver to those supermarkets. And then, obviously, we would get them all to run our uh, the common merchandising program so collaboratively and collectively they could get the clout the purchasing clout that we could bring to bear and go to our cpg companies and essentially become a portal for them to ship goods into the city so we when we talk about food deserts there is a concept and we see it uh, play out across the country across the united states how in uh, poor areas typically it's harder to get fresh foods and and really anything other than fast food or processed foods highly processed foods it tends to also be cheaper i understand very much the social case of why it's important to get healthier foods to some of those neighborhoods what is the business case from Crasdale's perspective about why it is beneficial to go into those areas? Well, quite, quite frankly, we've always been in those areas, um, but opportunity. Obviously, when these chains left the city, it left a vacuum. We figured out the best way to uh, essentially and uh, economically drive those products into those stores so those consumers could eat healthy, good meals at a reasonable price. Um, Again, that was the Seatown Group. Uh, it took, you know, independently owned supermarkets who were very not very skilled and not very professional in terms of their ability to raise capital and go to banks and maybe operate like a, a store you would typically see in suburbia. To to use our expertise, we would provide capital for expansion, remodeling, getting the stores to look essentially the way they do today and be, you know, really shopping places to go look for a consumer where they can get a healthy meal at a reasonable price. Uh, so it's basically opportunity. The opportunity was there. We filled the vacuum. We did it well. We did it so well that we got a lot of copycat you know, companies coming in after the fact. And now there are no more food deserts in New York. In fact, there's probably too many supermarkets. <laughs> it gets more and more difficult you know, for not only us, but for our store owners to run profitably. It's a very low margin business. Uh, and when you're where it used to be, as you said, Lisa, one one seat down on the corner, there might now be three or four stores on the corner on top of drug stores, convenience stores, dollar stores, big box stores. Now we have to deal with online ordering. So everybody picking away. Well, how about you know, so New York City is obviously tremendously diverse in, the, in terms of ethnicity population. I mean, how do you have to you have to have the knowledge to have you know Korean food in a Korean neighborhood, Hispanic food in a Hispanic yeah, yeah, neighborhood? Exactly right, Paul. Exactly right. In fact, you could go five blocks away and be in an entirely different neighborhood than the one you just came from. The beauty of our program, while we put together a base merchandising program that every store would have to run, what we did that was not common at the time was we gave those independently owned supermarkets the ability to tailor or customize that program so that they, they could then sell those items that they need to sell to their c- customers that are in that neighborhood. We were smart enough to realize that the owner of that supermarket knows his area better than us. Just use us to be able to bring the cloud of the 200 stores that we now have working collectively to bring them the best products at the best price. And that's how it grew. And it was wildly successful. It went from just a handful of stores in the 70s to maybe 200 stores by 1990. Yeah. So successful that, you know, we started other banners, our Bravo supermarkets, our AIM supermarkets, 
AIM's a little twist. AIM, a lot of these independently owned supermarkets still like the independence of their own name. Right. So what we call AIM, they can operate like a DeChico is yeah. an AIM program. North Shore Foods is an AIM program. All right, so AIM yeah. becomes secondary. Their name, their family name, these are all family-owned businesses like Crasdale that we're dealing with. Yeah, that they can keep their, uh, exactly. their own identity. Steve Silver, thank you so much for being here, President and Chief Operating Officer of Crasdale Foods, very much a New York City story, near and dear to my heart, considering that's where I was born and raised. Uh, Steve Silver, thank you so much for being here. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's turn our attention to uh, Amazon Prime Day, not because we want to necessarily push this, but because we think it is important to sort of gauge the uh, consumer sentiment currently, as well as Amazon's overall goal going forward and, and, and their success in getting new Prime members. Joining us now, Evan Clark, Deputy Managing Editor for Women's Wear Daily. Uh, Evan, I want to just first start by what are you expecting this Amazon Prime go around and how important is it to retailers? Well, I think it's really important for Prime and for the rest of the industry, but I think there's also kind of a little bit of context in that Amazon's really kind of packaged this in a really savvy way, but it's a sale and retail has been holding sales forever from, you know, it's something that kind of comes between the 4th of July and Memorial Day sales and Labor Day. So Evan, Amazon- thank you for the real speak, by the way. Yeah. Let's just talk about what it actually is, a sale. Go on. Right. So, but it's, uh, you know, but all that said, we're, we're talking about Amazon. A lot of consumers are out there. There's over 100 million Prime members. Two-thirds of them are expected to be shopping on this kind of Prime two-day uh, event here. So they're, gener- they're doing exactly what merchants always are trying to do, kind of gin up some interest and some buzz. And a lot of retailers have, you know, not to be kind of outdone, have jumped on this. Amazon or uh, eBay has a crash sale, which is kind of a, 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 refer- a cheeky reference to Amazon has crashed in the past on this day. I think a total of 250 retailers are expected to be holding some kind of Prime Day events. So there's a lot going on. But in the end, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a basically a way to cut price and you know, kind of get shoppers and motivate shoppers. So what do the typical Prime Day customers buy? Is anything different than what typically is done? No, I think it's it, this, it looks like we've seen in the past. I mean, the, two of the big categories are electronics and fashion. I mean, fashion is an area, uh, you know, electronics is something that Amazon's in, in its own right. There's a lot of Alexa deals. There's a lot of Echo speakers and things like that. And fashion is an area where Amazon's very kind of keen to build. So th- those are two of the categories to watch. 
One thing I'm trying to figure out is how retailers that are not affiliated with Amazon feel about all of this. In other words, they're being forced to discount things yet again during the year, and they potentially have to pay, uh, you know, to, to Amazon. Uh, Bloomberg opinion columnist Shira Ovide calculated 26 cents on each dollar to Amazon, and that doesn't include any additional fees to pay for advertising to get better placement in the search results. How, how, what's, their, what's their sense of, of this type of day? Well, I think, you know, retailers don't need, again, they don't need a whole lot of uh, pressure to cut price. It's kind of what they do. Um, but Amazon certainly is an is a, is a immense competitive force on the, in the online sphere, and retailers have to answer this. So, you know, they're, whether or not they want to, they, they kind of really have to jump in. And I think it's also a chance to, you know, it, it, there might be a little bit of glee here in a certain sense, and that here's an opportunity for retailers to try to kind of not let Amazon just run away with the day. So they're trying to, you know, they on on their own, individual retailers really have a difficulty kind of standing up against Amazon. But if you have... Amazon having their big sale and 250 retailers are trying to counter them, there's actually a little bit of juice there. So I think it's this, all of this just gets the competitive spirit firing. So Evan, I saw yesterday that there was actually a small strike at one of the fulfillment centers for Amazon. Can you tell us about it? Is it anything for Amazon to worry about? Well, yeah, I think uh, Amazon has in the past been criticized for how it's treated some of its workers and, 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 and you know, there was a big expose a few years back, and since then, I think they've really tried to uh, rehab their image to uh, to an extent, and they've been focusing on the um, and they've used their their might, uh, their kind of financial might, going to a minimum wage of fifteen dollars an hour. So really, that's kind of what's going on. I think it's it's you know Amazon's big you know namesake day, so people who are trying to you know. Uh, raise complaints about the company or the working conditions, kind of use that as the moment to hit. So it's Amazon's big day, but it's also kind of Amazon pile on day. Right. <laughs> A big day for Amazon looking at, uh, I'm seeing some numbers, you know, five to $6 billion uh, of goods uh, bought and sold. So uh, uh, being bought by consumers on Amazon during Prime Day is just extraordinary. So I'm, I'm not one of them. Are you, Lisa? I, I did buy a gift you did. Okay, good. Yeah, good. I figured why not, right? I oh, mean, well, Tom was sale. scrolling. Tom Kim was scrolling across it all this morning, finding great deals. Seriously? For, you're, yes. you're, you're outing him. You're basically <laughs> exactly. outing what he was doing while he was on radio. He was actually scrolling through deals on exactly. Amazon. Exactly. We could, uh, find, we could find some scooter deals for you guys. Yeah, I'm sure we could. <laughs> yeah, uh, we and helmets, because yeah. we're going to be safe. Evan right. Clark, Deputy Managing Editor, Woman's World Daily. Thank you so much for joining us. Again, a big day uh, for Amazon. Uh, it's interesting. These big days, it's it's is what it is. It's a sale. And it's a sale in the summer to drive traffic. It's also a way to, uh, I think, really attract more Prime members. And we know the Prime members spend so much more on Amazon uh, than non-Prime members. And it's just good business. So they continue to drive the Prime membership. It is bank earnings day today. JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, all reporting earnings to get the latest. We welcome Yaman Anaran, senior finance writer for Bloomberg News, joining us 
here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, Yaman, thanks so much for joining us. I know you're busy uh, crunching all these numbers, getting out uh, your uh, notes on these companies. What's your key takeaways maybe from some of these big investment banks reporting today? Um, you know, I think investors are, are kind of happy with Goldman's numbers, um, although, and that's probably because their equities trading was was uh, up while everybody else's was down. Uh, fixed income is down across uh, the companies, uh, but that was sort of more expected, you know, fixed income going down. But equities was also down at Citi and JP Morgan while Goldman held up on that. And trading is, is so crucial for these guys that, that, that that's really the bottom line everybody looks at. Um, the, the universal banks that also do a lot of lending and, and you know, they take deposits like JP Morgan, Citi and, and Wells, um, there we see net income, uh, net interest income is still rising, which is amazing because interest rates are dropping again. But they're writing more loans. Right, right. I mean, they are. So the volume is growing. Exactly. You, you, got, you hit it on the head. They're able to expand how much they land, even though their margin shrinks because rates are dropping. But, but that's great because, you know, for the rest of the developed world, that's something they can't really, they just don't have the margins and they don't have the growth. So, so it's, they're hurting. So the story that I gather from JP Morgan, Bank of America, Citigroup, and Wells Fargo is that the consumer is very strong. You're seeing a very robust deliverance there from those units and that investment banking is lagging behind. That there just is, there isn't the type of fee revenue that there has been, uh, at least the fee revenue growth that there has been in the past. Uh, I'm just wondering, did Goldman Sachs give any indication of why they are not in that crew? Because they have come out and actually beat on equities trading and they beat on investment banking revenue. Um, you know, they, they do, but even while beating, you know, you look at investment banking revenue for Goldman, it's down. So, so investment banking is not doing great. Um, and this has been a few quarters now. It's not just this quarter, really. You look at the last couple of quarters, the consumer is, is still kicking uh, strong, but, but um, the, the trading investment banking side of the business is, is really slowed down. Um, it's still generating great revenues, but they're, they're lower when you look at last year's quarters, similar quarters. So, so that's across the board. Um, Goldman had an incredible, wonderful jump in its uh, own investing and lending uh, division, which is their, their, their own investments, um, like merchant banking, I mean, you know, and, and the companies, their private equity, where the, they buy the companies, invest in companies, and then then they IPO them, so they had several IPOs, I guess, during the quarter, and and uh, monetized those those uh, uh, increases. So so they did great on that, but the other sides of the the, the businesses are not doing well. Um, they talked a lot during the call at Goldman uh, about Marcus and and their consumer lending as well, because they're trying to make more money on there, and and they they are probably able to. But it, for Goldman, that's still such a small amount that it doesn't really showing their earnings uh, but their you know their goal is to really bring consumer lending and consumer deposits uh, to be a bigger uh, revenue item for them is there a sense that we've had a you know several quarters you know maybe even longer I think longer where the capital market side of the business the whether it's the equity trading the fixed income trading sides of the business you know is there an expectation that those businesses are going are ever going to become meaningful profit drivers in the future or they're just as a regulatory environment changed so much that, you know, it's just not worth the capital to really drive those businesses. 
for the US banks, they still make good money on that side. Uh, Europeans are having second thoughts about that. That's why Deutsche, Deutsche Bank, Bank is right. really uh, going down. Um, and not just Deutsche. Even BNP Paribas, which is now like the, the strong-looking European bank that's trying to take away some of Deutsche's businesses as Deutsche shrinks, they've slowed down in some areas of capital markets as well. Because for the Europeans, whose capital markets are not that strong, and they have to be really in the U.S., to get more volume and more more value for their buck, um, they're not. It's not great uh, proposal for them. But for U.S. banks, they still make a lot of money. They'll stay in and they'll keep grabbing more market share from from the European peers. Did we hear anything on the calls or elsewhere about how much business uh, some of the U.S. banks are getting from Deutsche Bank? Vaguely, uh, people were asked about it, and they all said, "Well, we do expect to, but." Nobody has really said, we, you know, this has been a boon and we're getting everything. You know, I'm sure they're all, and you know, today we have a story on, uh, on the Bloomberg Terminal about, about uh, Deutsche's um, uh, hedge fund clients uh, already deserting uh, before it could be transferred to, to BNP Paribas, which is an agreement to, to have. Um, so they're all probably going fleeing, but they all go in different directions. So it's not going to one firm. They're all gonna go to different firms and those, they probably have relations with those firms anyway. Typically, one fund doesn't work with just one broker firm. Um, they have multiple brokers, so they probably cut one broker and, and increase or stay with three brokers that they already had. So let's spend a minute on Wells Fargo. They've got a little bit of a problem there in that they don't have a CEO. Did they have any new news today about they, their They search? have a lot of problems, not just not having a CEO. <laughs> I mean, their biggest, when you look at the numbers, which 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 are announced today and, and the several quarters that, that I've looked at their numbers, their problem is that they cannot grow. So when you can't grow, when you have a cap on your growth, you have it's very hard to really do, you know, make more money. You cannot make more money when you can't grow unless the margins keep expanding and, and you can't expand margins when rates are falling. So initially they did manage to expand their margins a little bit by cutting costs um, and squeezing more out of, uh, of the loans they were making. But now you know, rates are falling, the margins are shrinking and they can't grow the, the volume because they're, they're capped with, with their uh, uh, asset and, and, and balance sheet size. So, so it's a problem for them. So their numbers are always restricted and they don't have leadership and it's a tough place so for a, them. If I'm a CEO in waiting, it sounds like a great job for me. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Be my guest. Yalman Onoran. Actually, please don't. I would miss you too much. Uh, Yalman Onoran, senior finance writer for Bloomberg. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.